Hey, well, good morning. I, uh, I've kind of got to commiserate with JD a little bit uh, just to kind of let you in on a, on a secret. I'm going to pull back the curtain on the life of a pastor. There are a few times where we are as emotionally vulnerable as in that moment where we have to ask you to squeeze in because you see like that instant willingness of people to either do what you ask them or not. And it gets very middle school cafeteria flashback very quickly. So thank you so much for moving in. You have no idea how stressful that is for us. Um, Hey, for the past couple of weeks in our small groups, in our time in here and in your personal time in your journal, we have been examining the role of obedience in the life of the people of God. Specifically, we've been charting that through the Old Testament. And obedience to God is a tricky thing because it's it's kind of one of those things where you instantly know if you are or you aren't. And the other tricky thing about obedience is if you don't get the why, then it's very difficult to do the how. And when we examine the role of obedience in our lives as people of God, we can never forget that God has called us into obedience for our joy and his glory. Um, when we're obedient to, li- to God, our lives are simply better than when we're disobedient to God. And, and that's difficult to remember. And, and if we're honest, one of the things that can be tricky as we approach a topic like this is that as you go into the word of God, you begin to see through his word, how God outlines the life he's designed for us in Christ. And you see the hope and the joy and the vitality and the purpose in scripture that we as Christians are called to fulfill. And the reason that's tricky is because as we do that and as we grow in our faith and continue to follow Christ, we begin to get a vision for what we want our lives as Christians to look like, don't we? We begin to get passions and, and, and giftings and, and situations and we start to refine those things and we know who we want to be and we know what we want our faith to look like, right? And that's the question that we always start with is what do we want our faith to look like? What, what's hard about this is that while we can go to the word of God and see what an obedience to God does to our lives um, and craft that vision of what we want our faith to look like, we also wake up every morning and we see that if we're honest, there's a gap between where we want our obedience to be and where our obedience actually is, right? And, and I, I would imagine that like me, a lot of us find times in our faith where we are frustrated and discouraged because we want so badly for our faith to be impacting and vibrant and we want to experience all of the things that scripture calls us to, but we're just not. And we're frustrated because we're not. And that's where our examination of the role of obedience is a really healthy thing. Because as we're gonna see more often than not, what stands in the gap of the faith that we want and the faith that we have is the endurance of our obedience. And here's why this is good news. Here's why this is specifically good news this week. As we've walked through the book of Judges in our time in the journal, we've seen that the people of God struggling with enduring obedience is not a me problem or a you problem or, or an America problem or a Kansas problem. It's a problem that the people of God have wrestled with throughout our history of following God. So if you have your Bibles, um, and if you don't, we have them at a table in the back, grab one. We are going to be in Judges chapter 2. Verses 11 through 15. And we're going to see this picture of the obedience of the people of Israel. Um, while you go there, a little bit of background. I love the Old Testament. I've always been a huge nerd uh, about most things, but specifically history. And because of that, I've always really enjoyed seeing how God works in his people over time. And the Old Testament's full of that. The gratuitous violence in Judges is also exciting. Um, but mostly, I really like the history. And what's happened in the book of Judges is that you see the people of God. They've been brought out of Egypt, right? Like they have gone out of captivity through the desert. Charlton Heston's gotten them to the edge of the promised land and he dies. Okay. And then Joshua takes over. And after Joshua takes over, they go into the land and they begin to see victory and they began 
to live into the promises of God that he gave them in the midst of their captivity. And instantly they become disobedient. So in Judges chapter 2, it says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. And this sets the pattern for how the people of God will interact with God really throughout the Old Testament. Is over and over and over again, we see the people of Israel experience God working in huge, ways in their midst, obeying for a little while, and then turning away and doing their own thing. And then the cycle continues. And, and as maddening as that can be to read from a third party perspective in scripture, it's even more frustrating and discouraging when that's the faith that we live. And, and all of us who know Christ have a spirit driven desire to pursue a life of joyful obedience to God. So how do we get there? When we look at that gap of where we are and where we want to be, we've got to look at what kills the endurance of our obedience. For the people of Israel, they had a pretty basic list that just plagues them throughout the Old Testament. I mean, a big one was cultural pressure. The pressure of the people of Israel to be like everyone else around them constantly plagues their ability to be obedient to God. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, you see the people of Israel telling God, hey, we want to be like these people. We want a king. We want to be like that. We want to be like them. Oh, that looks like fun. Let's do that. And the cultural pressure to fit into the world around them constantly plagues their ability to obey God, right? Um, Another huge one for them is fear. Anytime you see the people of Israel threatened either by invasion, danger, death, really anything that makes them afraid, their obedience crumbles and they always run to either idols or the way that they think they're going to figure something out. Uh, and, And I would imagine that that is a familiar pattern for some of us, that when we operate out of fear, we quickly stop being obedient to God. Another one's idolatry, is they look at these idols that were almost all means to an end, right? So um, if you wanted it to rain, you kind of worship the rain idol. If you, if you wanted a good harvest, you'd worship the harvest idol. If you wanted a baby, you'd worship the fertility idol. If, if you wanted your team to win, you'd worship the football idol that they had there. And they literally had idols that became a means to an end. So they left God because they felt like their obedience to God simply wasn't getting them where they wanted to go. So they found something that they thought would. Jealousy was huge. They, they They would see things that other people had or the way that God had worked in the past and they'd want that for their lives or or a huge one specifically in Judges is personality change, right? So as we've read Judges, we've seen the people of Israel get themselves into some fairly tight jams because of their disobedience and God raises this leader up who takes the people out of that crisis, leads them back into obedience to God and then as people are wont to do, they die when they get older. And then it's like the substitute teacher walks into class and everything falls apart, right? And then the cycle starts over again. The people of Israel had a very difficult time enduring a change in personality. They, they, they couldn't seem to have their faith that endures through that. And as we struggle with that same tension of where we are and where we want to go, I think a lot of us can probably relate to some of these things and how they can take our obedience and completely make it crumble in front of us, right? So if we can't look to our lives and we can't look to the people of God in the Old Testament to see enduring obedience, we have to look somewhere else. And that's good news because we can always look to Christ. So if you have your Bibles, go to Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to see how Christ models an obedience that's different from ours and different from that of the people of Israel. We see that Christ models an obedience that endures over time and through circumstances. There has never been a time from coexistence through eternity that Jesus was not obedient to the Father. 
Even in his incarnation, the obedience that Jesus had to the Father endured birth. It endured adolescence, which just sidebar, did any of us have any type of obedience that endured adolescence, right? Like, probably not. Um, it endured death on the cross. It endured everywhere. Jesus never stopped being obedient to God, ever. He also had an obedience that endured through circumstances. Like you remember Mark 4, right? Jesus is in the desert. He's fasting and Satan comes to him and he begins to tempt him. And he throws all these things at Jesus to try to distract him. Hey, I'll give you the world. Hey, jump off and have some angels catch you. It'll be fun. Let's try all these things. And Jesus continually responds out of scripture and tells Satan that he will not waver in his obedience to God. Jesus has an obedience that endured circumstances. Time and circumstance are threats to our obedience if we do not have it centered in the place it's supposed to be. This is why I love this section of Hebrews is because it really clearly paints us a picture of what enduring obedience looks like, why we should have it, and how we get there. Um, So let's take a look in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It starts off, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Really clearly, we see a picture of what enduring obedience is, why we should have it, and how we get there. And the first thing that this does is it correctly frames obedience. We see right from the very beginning of this section of Hebrews that obedience is a visible outworking of an invisible faith. And to understand Hebrews chapter 12, you really need to get Hebrews chapter 11. Um, Otherwise, the great cloud of witnesses that it starts with just seems weird. Uh, What happened in in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews is it's a lot of times called the Hall of Fame chapter. And and you've seen the author of Hebrews go through the heroes of the Old Testament and, and call you to look and see how they were justified by their faith, right? Abraham was justified by his faith justified by his faith, justified by his faith. And in doing so, he says they were justified by their faith. And then instantly after he says that, he talks about what that looked like, right? So he links obedience and faith as as being very closely tied together, but he also properly frames the order. You have to have faith before you can have obedience. If you don't, obedience is going to be very legalistic, frustrating, and discouraging, which it was never meant to be. It was meant to be life-giving, healing, and hope-giving. So you have to understand at the very beginning of this chapter that the author needs you to get obedience happens after faith. But because we have faith, we should have obedience. So he continues and says right here at the beginning of verse 1 that enduring obedience overcomes sin and distraction. Look more closely at verse 1 with me. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So this calls you to pursue Christ with endurance, right? But what does it call you to do before it calls you to run with endurance? It calls you to throw off the sin that's weighing you down. Because here's the reality of our obedience. If your obedience is lacking endurance, it's very likely because you have sin you haven't dealt with that's making it very difficult for you to run with any type of endurance through circumstances and time. Um, You know what happens if you were to run a marathon with like a Volkswagen Beetle strapped to your back? You would get tired more quickly than the guy that did not have the car behind him, wouldn't you? Right? So spiritually, it's kind of the same thing. When we want to pursue Christ with this massive sin that we haven't dealt with, it's going to weigh us down. So when Hebrews calls you into obedience that endures, it says, get rid of the things that make obedience hard. 
It's, it's a simple concept. A lot of us don't do that. We don't see the sin in our lives as a problem. What we do is we want to compartmentalize it and say, I'm going to pursue God over here on Sundays or I'm in my Bible or when I serve and that'll be fine. And then the rest of the week, I'm just going to do whatever I want. So my sin doesn't really affect what I'm doing over here. In, re- in reality, what we do spiritually when we operate like that is akin to going to the gym to lose weight and running on the treadmill while you, while you drink like a three liter of Dr. Pepper, right? Like those two things are counterproductive. You would never do that. You would never do that. But we do the spiritual version of that with much higher stakes almost every day when we act like the sin in our lives does not make it harder for us to live into the joy and faith that God's called us into. Every time. We have to realize that our sin's a problem. Here's the second thing we have to do. We have to throw it off and get rid of it. And, and the crazy thing about sin is we pursue it because we think it's making our lives better. So instead of throwing off the sin that slows down our obedience, we get bored with the existing sin we have, so we look for more. Right? And, and in, in reality, when we do that, we just continue to make it more difficult to be obedient. So how do we throw off the sin that weighs us down? Here's what we never want to do. But we can operate like this if we're not careful. We never want to know other Christians who are being weighed down by sin and, and have our response be akin to, man, it seems like you got some problems. Good luck dealing with that. You really got to get that worked out, right? Like we don't want to do that. You will never throw off the sin that weighs you down in isolation. This is why we call you into small groups. This is why as a church, community is a big deal for us. Not community like get together, have dinner, and joke around, although those things are fine. We want small groups to be a place that help you to grow spiritually, heal you where you are wounded, and equip you to kill the sin in your life. That's why we call you into doing that, because we have blind spots, and we need each other for this. We need people who can speak into our lives and say, hey, listen, um... I feel like the way that you treat your wife is weighing down your ability to pursue God. I feel like the way that you're handling money. I feel like the way that you lie a lot, like about everything. Like you never played for the Broncos. What are you talking about? Like the way that you do that is, is going to affect your ability to pursue God. The way, the way that you handle conflict or, or the way that you handle a dating relationship or why are you hanging out with this chick that you're not married to so much, man? Like that's not okay. Like we need people to speak into our lives and call us out of sin that entangles us when we don't realize it. That doesn't happen in your living room by yourself. That happens where you have a loving community of people that can help call you to repentance, healing, and a joyful, vitality-filled pursuit of Jesus Christ. That only happens in community. That's why we call you to that. It's not just because we want you to do it. We want you to do it because it helps build an enduring obedience. And it helps us get to the life that we want that God has called us to. Struggle with sin in community. It will go better for you. Here's the second thing about enduring obedience that we see right there in verse 2. We see that enduring obedience focuses our lives on the finish line. Here's what I mean by that. When you train, if you've ever trained for like a marathon or if you've ever done some kind of a mud run or anything like that, you're training to get to the finish line, right? Like no one finishes a marathon and says, you know what, I'm going to knock out another six miles while I'm here after they're done, do they? No, you go to the finish line and you stop, right? So you build up your endurance to get to the goal that you're trying to accomplish. Our lives are no different. The spiritual goals and the emotional goals that we set for ourselves, we will build an endurance to reach. So if your finish line is not God's finish line, your obedience to God will not endure you accomplishing what you want. And you turn God into the thing that's going to help you get where you want to go. And you're trading the eternal finish line of God for a temporal one that's never going to get you the type of kind of satisfaction that you think it is. So we've got to move the finish line. Let's look at verse 2. It talks about that. 
looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. It talks about Jesus enduring here. What does it talk about him enduring? Crucifixion itself, right? It says that Jesus endured the cross. Why? For the joy that was set before him. When it talks about the joy that was set before Jesus on the cross, is he talking about the physical act of resurrection? No. Do you know how we know that? Because nowhere else in scripture is the physical act of Jesus being crucified described as a joyful experience. We would never do that. So if if Jesus didn't endure crucifixion because that was fun for him, then what was the joy that made him do that? It was the finish line. What was the end result of crucifixion? It was the salvation of humanity, the invading kingdom of God, and the eternal glory of the Father. That was the finish line for Christ. And here's the good news. That's the finish line for us. If we are pursuing anything less than that, our obedience will never endure past those false finish lines. So whatever it is that we pursue ultimately will be the thing that we build up endurance for. So if if we're single and the thing that our finish line is, I just want to get married. I'm just going to be obedient to God and get in a small group, a single small group, because I need to get married. When I get married, my life's going to be easy and awesome, right? Like, so that's a finish line that we do. For some of us, it's a, it's a thing at work. So man, I just need to be obedient to God so he can help me get this promotion. Basically, I need God to get me from here to where I want to go and I'll be obedient as long as he helps me get there. And as soon as he stops working, I'll try something else. Or as soon as I get there, I'm done with God because he's just become a means to an end. What Jesus does is he sets us up for an end that's better than anything that we can imagine. And it's weird as Christians, a lot of times when you and I think through our lives and our purpose here, we think more about right now than the eternal perfect kingdom of God. Isn't that strange? Like Topeka is nice and everything, but, but you do understand Topeka, eternal kingdom of God, like kingdom of God better, right? Like we get that. Okay. So What's crazy is we don't operate like that with our lives. Um, I love what Cyril of Jerusalem wrote when he's talking about the second coming of Christ. What he says is we preach not one coming of Christ, but a second as well, far more glorious than the first. The first gave us a spectacle of his patience. The second will bring with it the crown of the kingdom of God. And, and that's a promise that we have as believers through Jesus Christ is to be a part of the eternal kingdom of God. That's why we pursue Christ for the eternal kingdom of God. Anything else will leave you dry and unsatisfied. We have to get to a point as believers where we understand that the brightest things that the world has to offer are dulled and overshadowed by the eternal weight and glory of the perfection found in the kingdom of God. And anything less than that will end in us being dry, frustrated, and legalistic. God has better for us. We have to move the finish line. Our obedience will always endure the finish line, and a lot of us need to move it. We need to make our finish line the kingdom of God. Nothing else is worth your time. Nothing else is worth your time like the kingdom of God is. And here's the last thing. The endurance of our faith is never going to outpace its foundation, right? Like that's just not going to happen. So here's the last thing. We've got to understand that enduring obedience reveals the foundation of our faith. What you build the why you obey God on is going to dictate the endurance of how long you obey God. Here's what I mean. God wants your obedience, but he doesn't want it just for the sake of your obedience. He's after your heart. So my son is um, four now. He is... um, He's able now to be louder and create a larger mess the older he gets. I'm hoping that bell curve drops off eventually. Um, we'll see. And what we do with him right now, we're working on him. Man, Ethan, you need to clean up your toys because just the living room is, it's like a minefield of Batman figurines and G.I. Joe's. There's like the, the leg that he pulled off. It's just kind of, you don't know how it got there. And it's just stuff everywhere. So we'll go to him in the fight that we're having right now. 
as Ethan, um, we, we need to clean the house. Let's try to get the house clean. Let's get this looking right. Would you please pick up your toys because that's your responsibility? And then it's just this 10-minute pick one up. Okay, I'm done. Hey, we need you to pick these up. But let me tell you when this goes differently. Um, Ethan, Batman's going to be on in five minutes. You want to watch Batman cartoons, these toys need to be off the ground. It's like he turns into the fast kid from The Incredibles, and it's just, it's gone. It's like he's his maid service in that moment. And as long as his obedience is getting him what he wants, he's a really obedient kid. It's crazy, isn't it? But here's the reality. I don't just care about the toys being picked up. I could do that better than him. Um, I could. I care about him understanding his place in the family, responsibility, and honoring his mother when she asks him to do something. I'm after his heart, not simply his obedience. God is the same. As long as Ethan is only obedient to us for what he gets out of it, that's going to hamstring his ability to be a functional adult in the long run. As long as we have misplaced foundations for our obedience in God, it's going to hamstring our ability to fully live into the life that God has called us to live. So um, let's look at Hebrews 12, verse 3. It says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Who's that? That's Jesus, right? Why did Jesus endure the hostility of the cross? It was for our souls. Look at what it says. So that what? You may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Being obedient to God is hard. It's painful. It's difficult. And it's going to make you tired. The good news is that you can lean on Jesus. That's why he's a big deal. Any other foundation that we build our faith off of and our obedience off of will leave us frustrated. But we do that. Man, for a lot of us, our obedience doesn't have the endurance that we'd like because of what we've built it on. Um, man, a really easy misplaced foundation for your obedience is knowledge. And here's why. And none of the three things that we're going to talk about are inherently bad by themselves. They're terrible foundations for your obedience, though. And the first one is knowledge. And this one's scary because we, we kind of like people that know a lot about the Bible at church, right? Like this is one of those things that you can actually frame as a good thing and in reality build a scary foundation on. Um, so we just, we can fall into this trap of we just want to obey so we can know stuff. I just gotta, I gotta, I gotta come to church. I gotta read my, I just need to know all this stuff. And, and here's why this is a scary foundation. If your endurance will only endure as long as your foundation, knowledge is not enduring. There will come a time in your life where through tragedy that strikes you or someone you love or, or someone in ministry or, or something that you can't explain with knowledge that will make you crumble if everything about why you follow God is because you follow him when you can know and understand what he's doing. If simple knowledge is all you have, you will very quickly reach the threshold of that knowledge and it won't work to get you to where God wants you to go. God's going to put you in situations that are painful that you don't understand. And you can't pull the verse or the systematic theology out and say, this explains why this is happening right now. That's why knowledge is a dangerous foundation for our obedience. God calls us to be obedient even when we don't fully understand how or why. So if knowledge is the foundation of, of your obedience, you, you, you won't have an enduring obedience. You'll have an obedience that lasts as long as you understand God. We don't have a capacity to do that for a long time, right? We just don't. That's great news because we were never supposed to. Um, here's the other kind of scary thing about knowledge is it can be self-terminating. And here's what I mean. If you're pursuing knowledge just for the sake of knowledge, what you do is you stunt your ability to give back, serve, and advance the gospel in the lives of other people. So um, we build these out-of-balance spiritual lives on knowledge that look like this. Hey, man, um, where are you serving? The church is calling people to serve. God's called you to impact other people. Where are you serving? I can't, man. I'm just busy. Oh, really? You're busy? You got a lot going on? Yeah, I got a pretty nice week playing, man. I got an Ephesians Bible study Monday. I got Galatians Bible study Thursday. Get, 
got Genesis Bible study Friday, maybe Revelation study on Saturday. I don't know. I don't know if we'll have enough time, but I, I just can't serve. I've got all this stuff and I've, I have these studies. And when we do that, we stunt the ability of God to actually take that knowledge in us and use it to affect other people, right? Like God doesn't just want us to know a lot. He wants us to advance the kingdom of God and the people around us. And I know that people like Hannah and Casey Lauer that, that serve in the mountain with my son at 6.30 on, on Saturday nights are advancing the kingdom of God because they don't just have a foundation of coming to know stuff. They have a foundation of taking what they know and impacting my son eternally. And I'm so thankful that they have. So when we build a foundation just on knowledge, we miss those opportunities to serve. Because we've just taken up the margin that we have with knowledge. That's, that's dangerous. It's not what God's called us to. It's good to know stuff. It's bad to build a foundation of your obedience on everything that you know. Here's the second one, and that's accomplishment. And listen, I'm a um, only child type A personality, so I like accomplishment. Like, it's just how I'm wired. I enjoy crossing things off and getting things done and, and winning. And I just I like doing things that you can see. It's nice. So I'm mowing the grass is relaxing. You look back and you see, and it's just, it's not, I like accomplishing things. And I think a lot of us do. And listen, accomplishing things isn't bad. God wants us to accomplish things, right? Actually, we're designed to, to get joy from serving God. That's a good thing. It's a dangerous foundation because if you were only obedient when you were accomplishing things from God, you fall into two traps. The first trap that you fall into is that eventually a house that you build on the foundation of your accomplishments is going to fall. Jesus talks about this, right? Sand, stone. Okay, here's why. Eventually you're not going to accomplish everything right all the time. Neither will I. Eventually we're going to mess up. We're going to miss the mark that God's called us to. And we're going to find that we're not always obedient. And if our foundation of our faith is built on what we obey, eventually that foundation is going to crumble because we're going to mess up. Here's why that's great news. Gospel says that Jesus died for your mistakes. So when you mess up, that doesn't exclude you from pursuing God again. It means that he picks you up, dusts your knees off, gives you a hug, and says, let's try this again together. That's why accomplishment's a bad foundation. Jesus never calls you to accomplish stuff so that he loves you. Listen, he's not surprised when you mess up. Um, My son, I honestly have no idea how he's going to react when I ask him to do stuff, right? Like if you're a parent, you know that feeling that you get like you're playing Russian roulette when you go to pick your kid up from school and you look for the facial expression on their teacher and when she's kind of cringing, you just kind of want to turn around and go back to the car. I have no idea what's going to happen when I pick him up. Some days, Ethan did awesome. Other days, we caught Ethan trying to kiss a girl behind the bushes on the play. I just don't know. I don't know what he's going to do. Um constantly surprises us. We never surprise God with how we either obey or disobey him. Here's why that's good news. Jesus died on the cross anyways, knowing that you weren't perfect. You don't have to accomplish things for God to love you. The other danger of accomplishment is it it tends towards prideful self-righteousness very quickly. Because if the foundation of your obedience is just what you can do that other people can't, you very quickly start to classify as better than and worse than. These people are better than me. These people are worse than me. And we do like this weird spiritual caste system, right, that that we're the subjective arbiters of. and, And we make accomplishment about what we think is good enough. It's a bad foundation for your obedience because, again, Eventually, that'll crumble under the weight of your and my imperfection. Jesus has been the sustaining foundation of our faith because he is the one that accomplished what we couldn't. Here's the last one, and this is one that, man, we love um, as evangelical. Actually, I'm kind of uncomfortable with emotion, but I'm working on it. I'm in therapy. I'll be ready for a hug and a cry in six months. Check back. Um, Emotion is a dangerous foundation to build your faith on, and here's why. If your faith 
and your obedience only happens when you feel good about it, it's not going to happen a lot. A lot of the times, the reason that our obedience doesn't endure a trip to the parking lot or a conversation with our in-laws or conflict or even opening our web browser is because our obedience is based on when we feel like being obedient to God. And there are environments where it's very easy to feel good about obeying God, right? Like you come to a worship service, got the strobe lights on, the fog machines on. It's like a ZZ Top concert and you're kind of swaying and singing, whoa, and people are crying. You don't really know why, Um, but you feel really good about obeying God in that moment. You're kind of on this emotional high. Well, that's not inherently bad. You're probably not always going to feel like that. If you are constantly waving your hands and crying, we need to have another conversation right now. But for most of us, we do not always feel this weird spiritual euphoria that we walk around in because life happens. Life happens. God calls us to be obedient and forgive people that have hurt us. I rarely feel like doing that. I just don't. Especially like in that moment when someone's wronged me. I, I, I don't feel like, oh, thank you, Jesus. I'm so happy this happened. It's not, it's not where I'm at. Maybe you're more mature than I am. That's just me. Uh, for others of us, man, if God has called us to do hard sacrificial things, we're not always going to feel like doing that. So when we have an emotionally founded obedience, what we tend to do is just hop from emotional experience to emotional experience and hide within this weird subculture that's now electronically available to us. So instead of being obedient to God with our lives, we'll just hit another podcast, or another worship album, or another conference, or another retreat. And again, none of those things are bad. They're all terrible foundations for your faith. Because eventually emotion subsides and God has never designed himself to be your spiritual Xanax. He's designed himself to be your Lord, Father, and healer. That doesn't just happen when you feel like it. It happens when it's hard. It happens when it hurts and it happens when it's really, really difficult. But that's great news because Jesus sustains that because he is enough. That's what the cross means. So as we look at our obedience, here's what we have to get to the point of realizing. Obedience is an overflow of our faith in, from, and through Jesus Christ. Your obedience grounded in anything else will never endure. It'll never endure. Jesus is the only thing that will eternally sustain us. And that's great news. So for some of us, what we do today when we examine our obedience and see what it reveals about where we are with God, our first move is to actually become a Christian. Because up to this point, we don't know Jesus. We just come to church once a month. Like you understand, not the same thing, right? It's not the same thing. Jesus has called you to a better life than simply attending a building occasionally. Nowhere in scripture is it a simple call to attendance. It's not what he says. The great news about the gospel is that the gospel is an invitation into a relationship with Jesus who was fully man, fully God. Died on the cross for your sins, rose three days later, sits at the right hand of the Father and is coming again. So that we may experience the eternal riches and glory of the kingdom of God. That is biblical Christianity. Anything else is dry, empty, and legalistic. God's called you to do so much more than attendance. And some of us have never made that jump. We've just kind of hung out on the periphery of church. And and we're here, but we don't know Jesus. And we see the hope that Jesus is offering, and we want it. And we need to today actually take a hold of that. It's a free gift. He can. God will start salvation today in your heart when we experience Jesus by putting our faith in him. And some of us have never done that. So we have this dry, frustrating faith, and in reality, we don't have a faith at all. We have an attendance record. God's called you to more than be here. He's called you to know his son, and believe me, it's better. So make that step today. Others of us, where we see that gap between where we are and where we want to be, it's because we know Jesus, 
But over time, our foundation has kind of slipped and, and we've taken it off of the gospel and what Christ did for us. And we've put it on other stuff. And so we're either pursuing the wrong things with our life, right? So through broken relationships or ambition or, or greed or lay or whatever happened that intersected with your life, you've moved the finish line and, and you know Jesus, but you're not ultimately pursuing him anymore. You're pursuing all this other stuff. So your obedience is dry. It's spotty. You feel guilty and discouraged. It's because you're you're chasing the wrong things. You need to move the finish line off of what you want and back into eternity. Eternity is the only thing capable of sustaining our hopes. That's what God created us for. We need to go back to pursue the things that God's called us to pursue. Some of us, the foundations kind of slipped off into other things. Is we really just want to know stuff or just want to serve. I just want to do this. I want to do this. None of which are bad, but in doing so, we've left our first love of Jesus Christ and we need to go back. We need to go back to Jesus being the foundation for why we do this. Anything else is going to widen that gap between the life that God's called you into and the life that you live. So my prayers tonight, uh, to this morning, is, is we continue to pursue Christ in a time of worship here in a second, that we would be honest uh, and we would do business with God and we would examine our souls, our salvation, and, and, and that we would continue to pursue Christ, whatever that looks like for us, whether that's coming to him for the first time, whether that is refocusing what you're pursuing, whether that is repenting of sin and confessing. Stop hiding your sin. Like God doesn't see it. Help, let people help you. Like if you never tell them what's going on in your life, of course it's going to continue to weigh you down. Let that be exposed to somebody. Like deal, do business with God. Reset the foundation that you've misplaced. Do that today. Do that today and take the first step into the life that God has called you through to, through Jesus Christ. Guys, pray that... Um, I just pray that as we seek you, um, that you would show us that you're faithful, that you would work in our lives in, in ways that we don't always understand or expect, but uh, in ways that are always good for us. Guys, pray that you would overwhelm us with your grace, that you would help people see the gospel and step into that for the first time. Pray that you would help us repent of the sins that separate us from pursuing you. Um, Help us throw those things aside. Help us confess them to get into community, to get help. God, I pray that you would help us to focus the foundation of our lives squarely on you because you are enough. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.